recording now. All right. So tonight I'm going to be talking about the temporary nature of Ichin and Sansen. Uh, I would like to talk about Ichin and Sansen or the 3000 conditions of mind in a moment. Um, and this is Ichin and Sansen is a very complex theory in Buddhism and frequently it gets reduced to simply explaining the 10 worlds. However, there's an aspect of Ichin and Sansen which I would like to explore with you. In a way, this is a, a developing realization. That is the way it happens for me. I'll think and think about something, turning it over and over in my mind. Then one day something will happen. Perhaps someone will ask me a question or some situation arises. And then all of a sudden a light bulb goes off and bam, inspiration lights up. Ten worlds. Many of you know about the ten worlds. And so I won't go into a lot of detail on each of the individual worlds. However, what I would like to illustrate is how they are mutually always present. There's a theory, a therapy philosophy called Internal Family Systems Theory, or IFS for short. IFS is considered an integrative systems model of psychotherapy, which was begun by Richard Swartz, PhD. Brief, briefly, this theory states that our mind is made up of relatively discrete subpersonalities, each with its own viewpoint and qualities, as well as capacities to process experiences. If we think about the 10 worlds, we can see a certain correlation between 10 worlds and IFS. We as individuals in any moment in time have a potential to experience any of the 10 possible conditions such as hell, anger, hunger, animality, and so forth. When we are in any of these 10 conditions, we also have the potential to experience any other condition. So when we are in hell, we still retain the possibility uh, to be enlightened. Also, when we are in any one of the 10 worlds, we view our environment and experiences in different ways than we would in another world. On a good day, if you're cooking and burn something on the stove, it might simply be a funny experience, one you can laugh about and shrug your shoulders and begin again. On a bad day, this same incident might cause you to yell and throw things, cuss, and have a breakdown. There is another aspect to this that we frequently do not consider, and this is age. Now, you may ask, what does age have to do with the 10 worlds? Consider this for a moment. Do you think that you respond to experiences the same way now as you did when you were three years old? or 10 years old, or even 20 years old, <coughs> for those older than 20. <coughs> Think about this for a moment. All right, so the you you are now is not the same you you were in the past. The hell of a five-year-old for many is not the same experience as the hell for a 20-year-old. A five-year-old hell is not being able to stay up all night or have dessert before the main meal. A five-year-old hell might be made to clean up a mess. A 20-year-old hell might be a boyfriend breaking up with his girlfriend. A 20-year-old hell might not being able to find a job or not being able to get off work to attend a rock concert. Can you imagine a five-year-old being in hell because she can't find a job? or can't date a certain boy, and yet, when each of these persons are in hell, they are in hell, in a hell for them in their current state. Different things will cause the experiences, yet hell is hell. 
The same can be said of enlightenment or any of the 10 worlds. So while the 10 worlds all exist simultaneously in any given moment, they are also changing in nature according to our age and circumstances. They are not fixed in any moment and no moment is fixed in time. Now we come to the, the 10 suchnesses or the junyose. <coughs> the 10 suchnesses, Touch, uh, sorry, the ten suchnesses we read every time we recite chapter two in Shindoku, they are the nyose phrases we repeat three times. They are briefly appearance, nature, entity, power, activity, primary cause, environmental cause, rewards, retri rewards and retributions, and equality. Is your appearance today the same as it was when you were five or twenty? I know for myself, it is much different. I didn't have all these wrinkles and as many gray hairs when I was 20. When I was 20, I was living in Hawaii, having a good time, going to the beach every day, riding my motorcycle, spending time in the wind and sun. Today, I wear the badges of all that as large liver spots and an abundance of wrinkles. As a 20-year-old, I had no concerns for my youthful skin. After all, don't most 20-year-olds think they will remain 20 years old for all of their lives? Maybe not. I am, as you all are, much bigger than you were when you were 5 or 10 years old. So appearances change with time. This we know, however, we sometimes forget and think the person I was as an 8-year-old is the same as the 60-year-old. The same is true of your nature which is your basic tendency in life. Your nature is perhaps only just being formed when you are six, seven, or 10. Even today, though perhaps much more slowly, your nature is changing. Buddhist practice is one of the best influences to changing our basic nature. Our nature is greatly influenced by our appearance, though appearance is objective and nature is subjective. They are still tied together. Entity is our form and power is our potential. As a 10-year-old, you have no power or, for most people, only limited power. Your form is diminutive and you are mostly controlled by others such as parents or teachers. A 10-year-old does what others tell them and doesn't initiate many actions of their own. Yet, that child is still processing experiences. Primary cause and environmental cause are our ways of processing our experiences, which then in turn influences the way in which we respond. So, an eight-year-old is forced into some labor of a less than savory nature. They have no power, no control over their environment. They merely do as they must. Now, this is very important to understand. Later on, that eight-year-old grows and learns the true nature of the activity they were forced to do. They learn that what they did may have been immoral or harmful to others. This may be an extreme example, but it applies to each and every one of us to some degree. The eight-year-old grows to become a 15-year-old and carries the memory of those actions as an eight-year-old. But the eight-year-old girl no longer exists in reality. This gets into the reason why we recite the ten suchnesses three times. One aspect of these ten suchnesses is they are temporary. I'll come back to this in a moment, but please bear with me. This material is actually difficult to talk about in a linear manner. Finally, the ten suchnesses we have 
In the 10 substances, we have effects, rewards and retributions, and equality. As you can tell, I'm not going into a lot of detail on each one of these, merely a quick overview. As little children, we make all sorts of causes for which we receive effects through our lives. Some of us may have learned to lie effectively. Some may have learned to be overly sensitive to emotions of others. Some may have learned to avoid conflict. Now, virtually no young child knows they are learning these things. A child doesn't have the mind of an adult in order to process that complex of a thought. We can see in this that, indeed, each of us is a product of both our environment, experiences, our physical characteristics, even our biological DNA. We are extremely complex beings. We make causes every moment of our existence. Those causes, though, yield different outcomes depending upon a variety of circumstances. Consider this. Anger as a 10-year-old generally looks and manifest differently from anger as a 30-year-old. Don't you think? Yes, <clears throat> they are likely to be some general similarities, but picture a 30-year-old holding his breath while lying on the floor screaming. That generally is not how at 30 year, a 30-year-old acts, but certainly how some 10-year-olds act. A 30-year-old may go get drunk and cause a fight, not generally something a 10-year-old is capable of doing. A 30-year-old might hit someone. At 10 years old, might also hit someone. However, the damage a 10-year-old might cause is frequently less than what a 30-year-old will. Even the remorse changes as we age and, becomes, and become more self-aware of our potential for harm or good. Three truths, Santai. This is why we repeat um, the nyoze, the junyoze three times. They are the santai are ku, ke, and chu. Okay, this is probably one of the most difficult concepts to explain and understand, and I will probably only do a poor job. However, I will attempt to do my best. Roughly translated, ku is voidness, ke is temporary, and chu is the middle way. This idea is actually used in various ways in Buddhist theory. This is my understanding as I am now and as I relate it to all of the above. Today, I am as I am and you are as you are. Today, we all carry memories of our past. We know what we did to varying degrees when we were children. We have memories. Those memories change within us depending upon how we learn to process and even that changes as we grow and mature. For example, my relationship with my de deceased parents and the way they treated me as a child has changed dramatically just over the past two years, even though they are dead. Thanks to some insight from someone, I was able to view some of the actions of my parents in a different light. The same actions which occurred over 40 years ago are now interpreted in a different way, and so, the effect of those causes has changed, yet this change only occurred in my mind. So those causes which seemingly are fixed and unchangeable actually are quite changeable. They are in a way both temporary and also void. Those causes no longer exist. They are only memories and the memory of them is subject to change. The original cause is ku or void. 
The memory is K, or temporary and changeable. The middle way is to re realize that both Q and K are reality at the same time. Let me offer another example. I will use a general story shared, by, shared to me by a woman I know. She will recognize the story, and some of her close friends may as well. Her story, though, is actually the story of many people and provides a lesson for all of us. As a young girl during World War II, she sorted clothes that belonged to Jews in concentration camps who were killed in gas chambers. Of course, we all know now the true horrors and atrocities of that time. When this woman was a young child made to do this work by parents who needed the small income it earned in order to survive, she had no idea what she was really doing. As children will do, she made a game of it. She, along with her fellow children, made the work into fun. It is often how we process things when we are children. As children, we are really not, really not programmed yet to deal with complex thoughts. Play is a survival technique. Think of the person who always makes fun of themselves, even though they are in great pain. If we laugh, it takes away some of the hurt. Now we fast forward 70 plus years and this, this woman, no longer a child of eight, a woman who has grown in wisdom and knowledge, a woman who has carried the guilt of the actions of the eight-year-old for most of her entire life. This eight-year-old both exists and yet does not exist. If we look everywhere possible, we would never discover the eight-year-old child. We have perhaps evidence of the existence of the child in photographs and memories, but that child no longer has any physicality. It is the same for the 80-year-old woman. If we look at the photos of the 8-year-old girl, we can see no picture of the 80-year-old who lives today. The 80-year-old woman is only a potential of the 8-year-old girl. I hope I've not made this too difficult to understand. This is an important and often neglected aspect of Ichin and Sanzen. In IFS theory, we have all manner and number of parts that comprise our self. At the core of self are these characteristics. We are compassionate, connected, concerned, centered, creative. There's actually a long list of C words that describe the individual at their core. Don't these sound a lot like about how we think of enlightenment? I think there's a great similarity. The parts that surround this core self are different aspects of self. For me, one part I identify as the five-year-old boy. This boy was bullied, teased, beaten, always told he was never good enough. There's also the 20-year-old guy who thinks he's a real badass, a tough guy, who will not take any crap from anyone. There's also the Buddha guy, who tries to be empathetic and actually has a hard time because he feels the pain of others so realistically. There are also many other parts who have developed either as survival techniques or as a result of internal growth. Please do not think about this in terms of split personality because they're not the same. In IFS, there's a complete integration of all the parts. In other words, all of the 3,000 conditions of mind are all present, all connected, and all related always. So, back to our 80-year-old woman today who carries the memory of the 8-year-old. This 80-year-old 
has tools available to her today she did not have as an eight-year-old. The eight-year-old had neither the skills nor the capacity the 80-year-old has. Think about the 10 suchnesses, if you will. Think about those as an eight-year-old and those as an 80-year-old. Big differences can be seen. Nature, appearance, you know, power, uh, all of those things are different. So <coughs> the eight-year-old has existed but no longer exists as anything but a memory. The eight-year-old has influence today even though there is no physical power present because the eight-year-old is, we could say, dead. The eight-year-old girl died a long time ago. She maybe hasn't been buried yet, but she is dead. In her place now, in her reincarnation, if you will, there have been a multitude of women who have come and gone. The reincarnation process, the cycle of birth and death, continue in every moment endlessly and without interruption. So what is real and what is not? This, I believe, is where the middle way comes in. All of it is both real and unreal at the same time. Can the 80-year-old woman touch the 8-year-old girl? Yes, at times the 8-year-old girl is perhaps painfully present. And yet, where is the 8-year-old girl? She is nowhere to be seen. Okay, we, have, we all have similar experiences to one degree or another. Things we have experienced, things we have done at different stages in our lives. We may have regrets and we may have pride. Yet all of those things both existed, no longer exist, and only exist temporarily and are no more. Life is very fluid experience, though we frequently wish it to be solid and unchanging. So how do we proceed? I think what our Buddhist practice calls on us to do is to understand the true nature of our experience, which is transient always changing, always dying, always being reborn in every moment of our lives. Mind-blowing, isn't it? So today, I make peace with the past. I am not the same person I was 60 years ago. I am not the same person I will be a week from today. I am responsible for my actions in this moment, but no longer in control or have power over my actions in the past moments. This moment only allows me to experience the effects of previous causes and decide how I will proceed into the future. In a way, the past does not truly ex exist, though we cling to it as if it were life and death, when in fact the past is only death and the present represents life. The eight-year-old girl only has power to the degree the 80-year-old woman allows it. We are each tasked with making friends with our past selves and past experiences and past causes. We are not given the job of passing judgment on the actions of our past selves. This is not our Buddhist practice. Judgment is not really compatible with Buddhism. Instead, we are called upon to live skillfully in the middle way. 
There's much more I would like to say about this. However, I've gone on long enough, and I thank you for your time and attention. Please feel free to ask questions. Your questions are a benefit to me because they may trigger some idea in my mind or provide me with an opportunity to make some self-corrections. So, okay, um, that's the end of my, um, not bad, I did it in 30 minutes. Hopefully I wasn't going too fast. Um, I wanted to stick to script so that I would, wouldn't ramble and I would cover what I wanted to. Um, so, any questions? Uh, uh, yes, sir. When, when you were talking about uh, the woman passing away, dying at uh, age eight and being reborn again at a different age, you know, throughout a, throughout her life as reincarnation, it makes me think of uh, Slaughterhouse Five, written by Kurt Vonnegart. I don't know if you've ever read that or not, but he, he it takes place during the Second World War in Dresden. He's he's a prisoner of war, and the city is firebombed. Mm -hmm. But he's, his life is saved by extraterrestrials called Tralifidorians. And the Tralifidorians are time travelers, and they, they see life as, they see uh, one life as multiple lives all wrapped up in one, kind of like a centipede, starting from birth, you know, to childhood, to young adulthood, into middle age and old age. And all of these lives are connected together, and that's, that's what... That's what I was thinking about when you mentioned that. Okay. And I think thing that that ties in with uh, with Buddhism, only in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Don't you think so? Yeah. 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 Let's go with that. So, what was the question? <laughs> that was an observation. Oh, okay, great. Well, I think that was a good observation. Yes. Yes. Aliska, how are you doing with all this? Um, I really like the part where you're talking about judging the eight-year-old. Did you know that there's just no place for that? Yeah, yeah. That, um, it's not that a concept. lesson. Yeah, it's not a lesson that society teaches us. It's it's a lesson that Buddhism uh, tries to help us unteach ourselves. Yeah, I like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, getting older and then, you know, looking back on things. I was the oldest child and and just talking with my brothers and sisters about different things that happened. We were all in the same house with all the same people, but we all had different, we all grew up in different houses in a yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the time they came along, things that um, I was doing were influenced by stuff they didn't even know anything about. Mm -hmm. and had shaped a lot of my behavior, so they see, saw me as a person doing certain things without a clue as to why I was doing them. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it just, when you were talking about that thing about the, the, the world of the child who's 8 and the 10 and then 20 and so forth, it's just real vivid to me because of that kind of thing, mm -hmm. of, of discussing my life or my brother's life or my sister's life and and how we perceive the home we lived in. Mm -hmm. So I, I imagine that the therapy you're talking about, Richard, what was his last name? Schwartz. Yeah, just I, I imagine, I'm guessing maybe that his therapy is geared towards maybe helping people understand that kind of thing. Yeah, and you know, 
I as as a chaplain, we, we're encouraged to you know to have therapy sessions ourselves. And uh, I'd never had therapy uh, until <laughs> until I uh, began studying to, training to be a chaplain. Um, uh, it, it it's a different story. But anyway, so I um, I went to, to I found this therapist actually she gave a presentation because we were in, in our residency program we um they introduced us to oh probably 20 different uh, psychotherapy uh theories and Erickson's theory of of uh family systems and uh, uh object relations theory and all kinds of stuff and um, when we had the presenter for internal family systems, I was listening to her and, and I was, um, like, whoa, this sounds a lot like 10 worlds, uh, in a different, you know, slightly different way, but very similar. And one of the things that you have to do as a chaplain is you have to, um, uh, relate your, um, your theo- theology and tie that into a, um, a uh, psychotherapy. You have to kind of show that you have integrated not only the theories that society has, but also your your uh, religious uh, spiritual tradition. And of course, in Buddhism, we don't have theology, and I keep pushing back on that until I'm <laughs> because we have no theos. Uh, but anyway, so uh, and because the ten worlds is not accepted by Western tradition. Um, Buddhism isn't looked at as as a um, uh, a respectable um, alternative to Western uh, theories and Western traditions. What I um, did was I uh, presented the Ten Worlds and uh, first, and then I sort of gave it validity by saying, "Okay, well, IFS." Also says this, so you should accept the ten worlds as a um, as as a uh, legitimate uh, theoretical understanding of the mind and psychotherapy. Um, you know, I mean, my my proof uh, only I mean it's only as good as I am in that um, uh, it you know I I can't change the system, but I can pick away little pieces of it <laughs> little by little. I can be a thorn in their side, shall we say, um, which is, you know, I guess one of the things I do. In fact, when I went to my committee, one of my uh, one of the people in the committee said, you know, there seems to be a, a certain certain theme or certain way about you in all of this. And and I'm wondering if you can identify it yourself. And I said, well, <laughs> you know, if you think about a a car, because that was the first thing that came to my mind. If you think about a car, um, I'm a car, and you know I'm a pretty old car. I got a lot of dents and dings and scratches and you know busted out windows in this car, but I'm working on fixing it. Um, you know I'd like to get it in pretty good shape before I die. So in the process, you know some of the some of the scratches I can kind of buff out and just put a little paint over, and that's really easy to do. But some of the deeper dents, I have to kind of pound those out. And so, yeah, I, sometimes I'm a little, little bit brusque. I'm a little bit forceful. You know, I'm a little bit emotional even about some of the things that I have to pound out sometimes. And she, she said, she, you know, most chaplains can't do that. Um, 
most chaplains won't talk about themselves that way. And I said, well, you know, what can I say? Um, you know, it's sort of like, you know, when they asked me, when they asked me to talk about God and, and my belief and my relationship or my belief and understanding of God, I just told them, I don't believe in God. There's nothing to talk about. We'll talk about something else, but we're not going to talk about God. So anyway, that kind of got us off, off subject there. But, but, um, no, what did they say when you told them that? Oh, they, they were kind of speechless. Um, and they, and they, they, they accepted it. Um, you know, I just told them, I said, we're going to talk about me. This is your, this is my committee hearing. And they'd ask me about, you know, how, you know, my, my understanding of the Bible and that, you know, they felt that I could benefit more by learning more scripture. And I said, I said, well, you know, what I'd like to say about that is, is I invite any one of you all to share with me even one line of text from any of the Buddhist teachings. And that was total silence. And it was, yes. And I said, okay, I can, I can quote you three passages from the Bible that I have kind of memorized. I said, I can do better than you can. So don't tell me I need to improve without looking at yourself. And they still let you be a chaplain? Yeah, yeah. I don't know how, but they did. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm told, I'm told that, that, um, what they want to know is how well identified you are um, with yourself, how well you uh, know yourself. And uh, because as a chaplain, you know, one of the things that people don't understand about being a chaplain as opposed to being a pastor or a clergy person that goes to visit congregants in a hospital is that a chaplain, <coughs> we, um, odds are we're not going to know the patient. As a pastor or a clergy person, they're in your congregation. You know them or you know their family. As mm -hmm. a pastor or, or clergy person, you also know their spiritual practice and their spiritual belief. And, um, and also there's a dynamic relationship that has been established. You are their power. You're their, their um, spiritual representative. Um, you have authority. Uh, and they are underneath you to a certain degree. I mean, it's just, there's this dynamic. As a chaplain, when you go into the room, you don't know this person. You are there to provide spiritual support that's appropriate to the patient. So part of the process is understanding where the patient is. Well, right. if I don't know myself, and if I am insecure in myself, then then the story then almost invariably will turn back to me and my story with the patient. But if I know myself and if I am um, secure and emotionally stable in myself, then I can sit there and have no needs that need to be addressed or fulfilled and can be open and receptive to only the patient's needs. If I have a grief dynamic that I'm not aware of or that I am uh, still uh, sub, uh, uh, you know, subjective to, then <clears throat> something may trigger that in a patient visit. And all of a sudden, I will be not with that patient, but I will be with my own story. And I will be relating to that patient in terms of my own story. So... 
for me, it is difficult to uh, be with AIDS patients. Um, I, I, I've worked on that. It is still very emotional to me uh, to be with AIDS patients. I love being with them, but I know that that is something that uh, I can easily lose myself in that visit. Um, that's probably one of the only things, um, you know, I've, I've, I spent um, a week with a family with an eight-year-old boy who had a terminal cancer. They were at our hospital um, uh, on a last-ditch effort, uh, an experimental treatment to try to cure the boy. Uh, the boy was never conscious in my presence. Um, I, um, you know, was with the family of, uh for many hours on many days, um, providing spiritual support. Um, they had asked for a Buddhist. Um, not many, not many uh, asked specifically for a Buddhist. And fortunately, you know, I am Buddhist, so I could visit them. But um, they didn't want a Christian. And um, they probably didn't want to hear that God will. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, so we spent time together and. And, uh, you know, the boy died. Actually, uh, it was for me, the, the, I think the hardest part was, is, and this is what happens as a chaplain, is that a lot of times we don't have any closure. Um, the boy died overnight. I was not on call. I was at home. He died overnight. The parents left the hospital, and I never saw them again. Uh, when I found out the next morning, I was, um, in fact, you know, I'm still a little emotional about it. I still think about uh, the sadness of it, that that these parents come to the hospital. They have a child alive, sick, yes, but alive. And what do they leave with? Nothing. They leave with a bill. They leave owing thousands and thousands of dollars and nothing else. And, um, you know, that's really, that's really, uh, you know, when you put it in terms of that, um, it's pretty emotional. It's pretty sad. Mm -hmm. So the chaplain has to, um, be able to walk into that 20 times a day. And if you aren't taking care of yourself and if you're not self-aware and know when you need to go do some healing some self-care, then you will have a breakdown or mm -hmm. you will become a drug addict or you will do something because you need to do something. You need to protect yourself. And we've developed all kinds of unhealthy ways of protecting ourselves. Do you do any work at the VA? I do not. I do not do. Um, the VA is kind of a, a very insular organization they they uh, like to train their own chaplains um, they um, also tend to be primarily Christian they haven't really gotten into this uh, interfaith thing yet um, uh, and also I was I was talking with my supervisor she said you know they're opening up the here in in Charlotte they're expanding opportunities for chaplains in the VA system here in Charlotte. And she said, she asked if I'd be willing to, um, you know, if that would be something I'd consider doing. And I said, you know, I took a moment and 
you know, it was kind of silent. She said, you do that every time. She says, I've never seen anyone who is so intentional about their responses as you are. You always take a moment before you say something. I said, well, I, you know, I don't know. That's just how I am. Um, but anyway, so after taking a few moments, I said, you know, I'd have to talk to um, the supervisor uh, because there's some, you know, uh, you know, I I was opposed to the war um, as a Marine. I was um, I was basically a conscientious objector. Um, I carried no weapon. I didn't train with one, um, and uh, so that puts me in a little bit of a different situation when I'm dealing with other vets. Um, you know, some vets won't would not accept that. Um, I mean, many of my fellow Marines didn't accept it, but um, but there were, you know, we, there was five of us. So, you know, we had our own little cadre and protected ourselves. Um, but um, so, so that, 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 that is a little bit, uh, it may be troubling to some people. And can I be authentic um, without being honest about that? And... Well, I don't know. I think there's a lot of guys who are in the system that uh, they, when when they went to fight in a war, you know, they realized what they were doing, and when they came back, you know, they had their their regrets and difference, and, you know, and they came back feeling differently. Yeah. And uh, you know, just because you weren't in combat doesn't mean you can't relate to these guys, and there are yeah. a lot of guys. That came back. That were opposed to the war. That joined the GI movement against the war and, and did things like that. And so I don't know. Uh, I personally, I I think uh, you know I've, I've got a lot of respect for what you're doing, and I uh, I think that there's you know people who appreciate you, or whether you're you know a Christian or a Buddhist or a Jew. I think the main thing is is that you're there for the you're you're there for the people, and that that means a lot to guys. Have somebody come in and, and talk to them, and and don't necessarily have to have shared experiences. You know, yeah. um, I was never a non, but I, I know a lot of non vets, know a lot of combat vets. I served during that time period. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, you know, I didn't get to go. Yeah, um, and you know, like you, while I was in, um, I saw what was going on, and and uh, I was starting to. Uh, feel differently uh, about the war from my fellow Marines. And there are a lot of other Marines that felt that way, too, that uh, uh, didn't think that we should have been there, yeah. that uh, there was an illegal war, and, you know, the whole nine yards. And uh, so you're not alone in that. Um, All of that is true. And um, it's, a, it's also a different, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a VA hospital or not. Have you? Oh, sure, yeah. I spend okay. a lot of time in and out of VA hospitals. I go to Bay Pines over here. Okay, okay. So so you know that it's it's a it's kind of a, a, a unique environment, one that I don't function very well in. And and that is it's a very um cliquish kind of environment. Um a lot of people a lot of people uh, in the VA system, uh, a lot of vets, especially uh, retired vets, 
uh, have no identity outside of the military. Yeah, that's true. And and I, that's not something I relate to. I understand it and I can recognize it, but I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I really can't relate to that. You know, uh, it's sort of like when I was at, on my committee, I had meant I said something about, you know, I mean, they all knew I was gay because I, you know, that's part of, you have to, you know, tell your story and you have to be who you are. And, uh, I had said something about, you know, being gay. is not, it's not really important. And, and one of the, one of the committee members said, he said, Whoa, stop a minute. He says, I think being gay is very important. He said, I'm gay. And I think it's a very important issue. And I said, I have to disagree. I said, being gay in our society at this time is a subject of great conversation (laughs) in many different ways. And that is what makes it important. But, you know, 200 years ago, being left-handed was just as, um, as, as perverse, as socially unacceptable, as... You know, people talk about being gay today. We don't talk about my blue-eyedness. We don't talk about my right-handedness. Right. And, you know, to me, being gay is just one little part, one little part of who I am. Now, in the context of society today, that seems important. But to me, it's just one little part. I am not gay. I, I, I am gay, but that's not who I am. So, so anyway, so that's sort of how I feel, and that's why I don't really relate to this idea of, you know, self-identity as being always in the military. And yet I know it's there. So I know my weaknesses. I know my limits. Um, and while I have great empathy and for, you know, vets and would love to help them, I'm not sure that I'm qualified to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I can understand what you're saying, but uh, you're a veteran yourself, so that qualifies you to work with vets as far as I'm concerned, because I've been in and out of the VA system for years, and, yeah. and there's a lot of people in there who are running things who are not vets and don't really relate, Yeah. and uh, you don't have shared experiences, and they really, and, and sometimes, you know, it can be pretty detrimental because they make decisions uh that affect a lot of people, and they have no real empathy for them. For example, out in um, uh, South Dakota, I think it's South Dakota, North Dakota, uh, they're getting ready to shut down a, a major facility out there that supports a town of 3,200 people. It's on the uh, Ogala Sioux Reservation, mm. Rosebud Reservation, okay. where it is. And they're going to shut that down because there's another hospital at Fort Meade uh, that a lot of the, you know the higher ups don't want to commute to back and forth. Uh-huh. And what's going to happen is the veterans are going to end up having to travel up to 200 miles round trip yeah. just for that's you know going to get medicine or seeing doctors or doing whatever procedures. They even shut down the ER there. Yeah. And yeah. it turns out that the guy who's running the hospital is not a veteran. So yeah. They don't care. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they don't care, and I've seen that before. I was, uh, in my experience, uh, whenever I had to deal with bureaucrats who were who were non-vets, yeah, uh, I 
wondering why they were even there. And then there were guys that were who were who weren't veterans who were uh, anti-war, and they felt like they were going to take it out on us. Yeah, yeah that's the the uh, the uh, proverbial uh, politician versus military guy. Um, the politician who's never served and the military guy who's never been in politics, <laughs> you know, and yet, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's it's unfortunate. I mean, you know, here in Charlotte, the VA hospital is uh, uh, takes about an hour to get there. Um, you know, I've got I, I work at three hospitals that are 10 minutes away and yet I can't use them. Um, well, I can now because I've got Medicare, but, um, you know. <laughs> Uh, I'm supposed to. Be. Yeah, well, you're better off. It's good that you can use them if you have to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I had an accident in my car, and um, I had uh, passed out. Uh, they think it was uh, heat stroke. Um, they don't think they have kind of ruled out stroke. But anyway, I, it was uh, two years ago. I, I had an accident. I blacked out, lost control of the car, uh, knocked down a telephone pole, totaled my car. Um, the ambulance came, I was still out and they, uh, rushed me to the hospital. You know, that's what they do. That's what EMS does. They take you to, you know, the emergency room. And so I was in the emergency room and it was being treated and slowly regained consciousness. And, um, and they couldn't, you know, they did MRIs and all kinds of tests and they really couldn't find anything except that I was severely dehydrated. I'd been out working. It's been, you know, over 100 degrees, and I was out working in the yard. And I guess really not paying attention to my fluid consumption. And then, as we age, um, our body processes heat and liquids a lot differently. But anyway, uh, so uh, you know, I, they billed it to the VA. The VA refused to pay because it wasn't life threatening. Oh, 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 oh man! Yeah. So, you know, I mean, but but we only knew that after the fact. <laughs> what was that? Oh, you know, I mean, oh, in that no. moment, we didn't know it wasn't life-threatening. So, you know, several hundred thousand, well, not a hundred thousand, but it was, you know, several, many thousand dollars later, um, the, the bill is paid. I, I, you know, fortunately, I could afford to pay it out of my pocket, um, out of, you know, savings, but, but not everybody can do that. And, um, yeah, that's the inequality of the system and but i am very fortunate very thankful to have um that permanent disability that was given to me after i got out of active duty and can now cash in on it um with uh, my limit my uh i guess you could say second class medical care through the va but it is it, it is at least third, second class and not third class uh Anything about this, any other thoughts or feelings, observations, uh, you know, gut reactions to, you know, anything I shared tonight? No, I, I, that was just the one thing that I wanted to get, um, bring up about the trial of Dorians. I wonder if, I wonder if, I wonder if uh, Kurt Vonnegut knew something about Buddhism. Oh, don't you think he did? I think he did. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I've not read it. He's not a he's not been a writer that I've been able to connect with. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but I I might I, I've never heard. Uh, you know, nobody's ever told me what Slaughterhouse Five was really about. And since he's not a writer that 
I never really connected with, and I kind of avoid the the top fifty writers anyway. Um, because <laughs> they're usually you know promoted by lots of money and publishing houses, and who knows anyway. But I might uh, it, it, you know. It, it, uh, your your sharing of that uh, certainly encourages me to maybe make another attempt at it and not be so close-minded. It's a good read. I think you'll, you'll think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll I'll take a look at it. Okay. Well, I think that's about it. Okay. Um, well, I'm really you're doing this because as far as the majority of information about Buddhism at all, about Nishiren Buddhism, I just haven't gotten a lot. Um, with Nishiren Shoshu, um, we had the magazines and then read some of that stuff, and there just seemed to be a lot of focus on Shakabuku, a lot of focus on uh, disputing Soka Gakkai, um, and just, I... There's just a lot I don't understand, so I'm looking forward to getting um, much more information. And I'm also really glad because what I didn't like about Nisha and Shoshu is it's like if I wanted to believe there's only one way, I could have stayed a Catholic. You know, um, really, <laughs> yeah. really, really disliked that. And um, so I'm really, I really appreciate, you know, also like, you're answering Bob's letters and his questions and engaging in discussion with him. Well, of yeah, course. that means we've uh, been trying to, we've reached out to uh, uh, the head priest and you know, Saji, and you know, we got pad answers back, textbook mm -hmm. answers. We didn't really try, I tried to engage in conversation, it just wouldn't go anywhere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I just don't like that. At least in Soka Gaka, I got plenty of conversation from the leaders. Right. So it's, you know, uh, but it's 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 just a different way of doing things. It's not my cup of tea. I'm not I'm not saying anything bad about any, about uh, about uh, you know Senji or any of that. It's just not my cup. It's just not our cup of tea. And sure. I think in my last my last letter, I explained a little bit why because right. yes. you know, we don't we recognize. We don't like fear mongering. We don't like mind control. We both know what it is. Well, I, I don't. I, I don't do fear mongering um, for the same reasons that you you don't like it. I don't like it. And and I don't do um, what was the other mind control? Okay, yeah, I don't do that either. I, I'm not good enough. Okay, so uh, <laughs> my my mind's too too distracted to be worried about controlling somebody else's mind. Um, yeah. Right. I can't control my own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Okay, so um, I, I I wanted to, you know, you were you were saying, you know, about the one-way uh, uh, attitude, about, you know, it's only my way or the highway kind of thing. And and I'd like to share with you the, the last, my most recent book, uh, I'm not selling books. I mean, I, yeah, I, they're for sale, but I'm not, you don't have to buy them. Uh, I'm not currying favor. You don't get points for owning all my books. Uh, None of that kind you of points. Huh? You don't give out gold stars. <laughs> Damn, I want a gold star. Yeah, no, no, I don't do that. Uh, sorry, oh. wrong group. Um, next group, down. <laughs> they're they're like five doors down. Um, but anyway, <laughs> my my recent my last book called on the Magic City. It's just about 
the parable of the magic city in the Lotus Sutra. I'm actually writing a series. Uh, I, my goal is, is to cover all the major parables and talk about how they relate to our everyday life, how we can use those lessons uh, that are 3,000 years old, 2,500 or so years old, how they mm -hmm. apply to us today and how we can look at it uh, in terms of our lives and society. And um, right now you can see the beginnings of the, uh, the Physician's Good Medicine, which is about the parable in chapter 16 of the physician and his uh, sick children. And also I'll make other references to uh, the uh, uh, Medicine King Bodhisattva later on in the book. But so it's, it's beginning and, I always put it, I always put my, I guess you could say my first rough draft online on my blog and invite comments. Um, it's kind of my ex, my way of exploring the subject first before I actually <coughs> put it all together and publish it. But anyway, the last book, The Magic City. In this book, I, ex, I use um, the um, Christian tradition of Lectio Divina. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Lectio Divina or not. But it is a Christian. Pardon? Divine something? Yeah, it what is. is it? Yeah, the, the divine reading, you could say. Um, you know, the divine scripture. But I use Lectio Divina as a way of understanding or a methodology of interpreting and understanding the parable of the magic city. I also use the Jewish tradition of Midrash, which is exploring what is not written in the scriptures. So there's a whole, pardon? Are you familiar with that? I just, I, no, I just not, I did that, uh-huh. Oh, okay. So, yeah, there's a whole, uh, uh, I guess you could say a division of Judaism uh, called Midrash. And they have a whole, they have a rich history of Midrashish literature. And it is all about what is not written in the Bible. Uh, or the Torah. And it's quite fascinating, a, a quite an interesting way to approach our scriptures. And in the Magic City, what I did is I looked at what's not written and how um, what is not written actually gives us a, a, a great teaching. Uh, and the, the I guess you could say the conceptual idea for the beginning or the 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 beginning of Midrash is of, of this Midrash practice in Judaism is <coughs> the people who wrote scripture were deeply, deeply spiritual people. Um, you know, the, the proverbial question, are you a human having a spiritual experience? Or are you a spiritual being having a human experience? And so the, um, the, the, the people who wrote the Bible or, or any of our religious texts, the Lotus Sutra, the Quran, the Bible, you know, any of our scriptural texts, the people, those people who wrote them were deeply, deeply spiritual people, people whose lives were immersed in spirituality. Uh, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have TVs. They didn't have, um, you know, freeways and cars and lots of things to distract them. Um, they had their spiritual practice and their spiritual belief. And so their lives were, were deeply integrated in spirituality. And 
the theory is or the idea is is that there are many things that they did not feel needed to be written because spiritual people would automatically understand and it would be communicated. Well, here we are thousands of years removed from when these spiritual texts are written and we don't have a clue because our lives are nothing like their lives. I mean, absolutely nothing about our life looks like their lives and vice versa. So what is not written becomes important to us because that is where a different message lies, a message that we can find relationship to in our modern human existences. And so I kind of use that, uh, that technique as I explored uh, the magic city. Uh, and I also used labyrinths. I don't know if you're familiar with labyrinths or not. Uh, yes. You are. Wonderful. You're one of the few people that is. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe the, the number of Buddhists who have no idea about labyrinths. But, you know, labyrinths isn't really part of our, our uh, spiritual practice. And yet I make the case that when we do circumambulations, which Sokogakai and Nichiren Shoshu don't do, and so you may be unfamiliar with that practice, but... No, I just knew of it from just other stuff. Okay, so uh, before Buddhism. Pardon? Before Buddhism. I found okay. them before Buddhism. Yeah. So, are you familiar with our practice of circumambulations? No. No. Okay. Well, part of our part of our practice is uh, at different religion at different ceremonies and also personal practice. We actually walk around the image of the Buddha. We, we make circumambulations and we do this. Uh, so as you're facing the Buddha, you would walk clockwise. Okay. The idea is, is that your right shoulder would always be facing the Buddha. And the Buddha sits in the northernmost uh, position facing south. And... Um, and the reason for this is there's, we have we have all kinds of stuff. There. We, and we also, when we enter a hall or hondo, we enter uh, with our left foot and we exit with our right foot. And there's all kinds of religious symbolism in all of this. And you don't learn that in Sokogakai or Nichiren Shoshu. Uh, but we, we do these things as a part of our spiritual practice. Um, you know, our right shoulder always facing the Buddha is, you know, to show respect and to show that we're unarmed. We have no weapons. Um, we always keep our uh, right shoulder bared. So when you see us wearing, when you see priests wearing their robes, um, like for us, we have uh, Wagesa. Well, Nichiren Shoshu had Wagesa as well, um, or Kesa. And uh, so you'll see the right shoulder is bare and the left shoulder has the, all the straps and everything for the, um, the Buddha's garment. Uh, and so we do that. Uh, we, we, the Buddha is facing south from the northmost position because as the sun goes around the earth, 
it rises in the east and sets in the west and the south facing northernmost position gets the most amount of sun in all seasons and so the buddha sits in the most elevated position soaking up the most sun um, we circumambulate or we circumambulate clockwise around the buddha so that our right shoulder is always present to the buddha our bare shoulder is always present we enter the hall let's see if i can remember this all of a sudden my mind is slipping we enter the hall our left foot in and our right foot out because why do we do that? Okay. I'll have to think about it. I've forgotten. So you caught me. Uh, I don't know everything. <laughs> I don't know everything. Uh, but anyway, we have a reason for it and I'll have to look it up. I can't remember right now. Pardon? I'm just wondering where it all comes from. Well, one of the questions I had, yes. kind of sh sh shifting gears a little bit. Uh, by the way, I've, I've done that circular ambulation in Zen walking. Okay. I don't know. I don't really remember if we went right or left. Okay. But anyway, uh, changing gears, um, in Nichiren Shoshu, uh, there's no soul, there's no reincarnation, and there's a, uh, a, a karmic body, I believe it's called the Anakosha something along those lines. Okay. And when I wrote to uh, Reverend about it, uh, I was asking him about, you know, uh, the karmic body, and he mentioned, you know, something like the ninth level of consciousness. When I asked him what the ninth level of consciousness was, I didn't get an answer. Yeah. The other thing is, is that where does where do these ideas come from? Where does, I mean, and I don't know about Nietzsche and Shu. Uh, from what I understand, Nietzsche and Shu does have a spirituality, which is one of the things I like, but that's mm -hmm. what I yeah. Uh, what? Where are they coming from with this? Well, I don't understand. With, um, with, since you've been in Eastern Shoshu, yes, you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I, well, I'm, I'm, I, I, I have a sense of what you're talking about, but, but specifically, I'm not. So, are you talking about reincarnation, uh, soul, and soul? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm talking about reincarnation. I'm talking about soul. You know, right. things like that. Right. Um. So here's my here's my my thing. Um, the Buddha teaches us. The Buddha's words are roughly that there is no permanently existing soul or self. Okay. So that means who I am today will not exist tomorrow. It will not exist a hundred years from now. It will never exist again. And if you think about the analogy that I like to use when I explain this idea, and, you know, the idea of no permanently existing soul or self means that you will never be reborn. Okay? You, you are it. Just as the it you were yesterday no longer exists today, although you see a continuation that same principle applies when you die. Just your life is in a different condition. But you don't know that any more than you know that yesterday you did not exist as you are today. We 
we like to see continuation. We do not like to see discontinuation. Okay, so the image that I use that I think most closely illustrates this, and you may have heard this explanation before, is a, the idea of a wave on an ocean. Okay, are you familiar with this? No, I'm not. Okay, so, you know, why do, why do waves occur on the ocean? Well, there's a, a whole mess of reasons. There are uh, geological formations under the surface of the ocean. There are temperature variations between the water temperature at the surface and Water temperature deeper down, these cause currents in the ocean, which can trigger waves. There's also atmospheric conditions that can trigger waves. Think hurricanes and such like that. Geological occurrences such as earthquakes can trigger waves. The moon certainly triggers waves, so, so astrological reasons. There are many, many reasons why we have waves. And in a way, each particular unique reason produces a unique kind of wave. All right. So you are a unique person. Your wave on the ocean was uniquely produced by your parents. Okay. You came into existence because... Your parents had a good time for a few seconds or a few minutes, all right? Or hopefully, hopefully it was a good time, okay? Maybe you don't like to think about that, but that's the reality. You are the result of a very pleasurable experience, okay? <laughs> and uh, so think about a wave on the ocean. Wave on the ocean has a duration. It has a lifespan. From the time it comes into existence until the time it beats its frothy mess on the ocean, on the, uh, the, the, the sands of the beach, it has a lifespan. We all have lifespans. We all have durations. We know that some people do not live very long. Others live a long time. And sometimes it doesn't matter how good or bad we were as to how long our life will be. Um, some people, you know, there's 100-year-old people who say, what do you attribute to your life? And they say, oh, drinking and smoking, you know. And, uh, and there are other people, you're 110 years old, what do you attribute? Oh, lots of tea. And so, you know, we don't know. It's, it's the unique nature of our individual lives, okay? So what is that wave composed of? the ocean. It's not separate from the ocean. It's not different from the ocean. It, it's the ocean, but yet it's a wave. You, yourself, and me, myself, we are unique waves occurring on the ocean of the energy of the universe, if you will. We see differences between ourselves because of our unique circumstances and our karmas, the previous causes that we have made. Had I lived a little differently when I was younger, probably I wouldn't have as many liver spots on my face as I do today. Uh, 
you know, had I lived differently, had I even processed my life differently, I might not have all the tattoos that I have. Um, you know, there, many, many things have contributed to what you see today and what you experience in me today. And any one little change may have caused a big difference in what you see. So what happens when the wave ceases to exist? It goes back into the ocean, right? Mm -hmm. right. And yet it was never separate from the ocean, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, our lives are the same way. We go back into the universe. We were never separate from the universe, but in a way we, I guess you could say, assume our true form. The wave is a temporary phenomena. Our life in this body is a temporary phenomenon. And that can be unsettling to people because they say, well, what's my purpose? What's the purpose? You know, I've got to, you know, I've got to have some kind of purpose and my life has to have meaning and all of that kind of stuff. And you know what? My belief is our purpose of being alive is to do good. Our purpose is to attain enlightenment. I think that is our fundamental purpose. So people would say, well, if I'm not going to exist as who I am in my next lifetime, which I think is a whole best bunch of crap. I mean, like, what difference does it make? You know, you're alive now. Celebrate. Have fun. Do what you want to do. You know, let the future. all you remember anyway. Yeah. Take, let the future take care of itself. So, but, you know, so people say, well, why? Well, you know, we are... Uh, some of my, my, my rabbi friends, we, we'd say, the reason why we do good is because good is a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, okay, so you're going to be reincarnated. That's the theory. We don't know. I mean, you know, it's all, it could be all BS. There's no mm -hmm. proof, you know. Uh, there's no proof. No one has come back. No religion. Nobody. I don't believe. Uh, has ever come back and said, okay, this is what it's like, and we're going to tell you, you know, mm -hmm. your belief is right and your belief is wrong. No one's done that. And we've been mm -hmm. living for how many hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of years, and no one has done it yet. No one will ever do it, I believe, um, at least not in our species. Maybe some other species will come along and tell us otherwise, but you know what? I don't think so either. Here, but so here's the thing. So people will say, well, what difference does it make if I'm a good person or a bad person? And my, my thing is, is, okay, if you're going to come back, if you're going to come back as a wave on the ocean, okay, you'll still be part of the ocean. What, which ocean would you prefer to be a wave in? A polluted ocean <laughs> or, or an ocean full of clean, pure water? Okay? I mean. You know, think of the Indies River, the yeah. Ganges River, I'm sorry, you know, with all the poop that's floating right. on the surface of the water there and all the, you know, chemical industrial waste. I mean, that, that the Ganges River is famous for all the human excrement that, that floats in that, in that river, okay? 
I don't want to be a wave in that one. I don't know about you. You know, I'd rather be a wave in a nice, clean, um, nice, clean pond. So it only takes a drop of oil to pollute a fairly large amount of water. It only takes a little bit of chlorine bleach to purify a larger amount of water. So I be go- I am good because good's a good thing to do. Good being good is a good thing. And I do that so that I can contribute to the the happiness, the purity of the body of water, life that we all exist in. Now, does that, you know, is that worth a whole lot? I will never get rich doing that, okay? But but you know what? I'm going to die in a few years. Rich is not the objective, you know? I, I was talking to uh, a guy I was, I took out, I converted some of my money, my investments into an annuity so that I could, rather rather than worrying about cashing out stocks and doing all that kind of stuff, I just have a steady amount of money and and, uh, you know, we were talking about the, the money and he said, well, you know, y- you want to try to leave some for your, for your, um, you know, to leave some inheritance money. And I said, no, you don't understand. I don't want to leave any money to anybody. I don't have a family. I have a brother. He doesn't need my money. And quite frankly, I'd rather spend it myself than have him spend it. And he said, you know. <laughs> You know, I said, and and then he said, well, you know, by doing it the way you want to do it, getting the most out, he said, um, you know, if you don't live more than five years, the insurance company will keep your money and your brother won't get anything. I said, hey, I'm going to be dead. I won't know and I won't care. I want my money now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's that's my belief. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, I was asked by Temple Bethel. They ask me every two years because they kind of rotate people around. But every two years, they invite me to do a presentation, give a, a lecture. And uh, year before last, because I'm going to do it again next year, year before last, uh, they asked me to speak on death and afterlife. And uh, there was 500 people showed up for this lecture. <laughs> it's like, whoa, I, <laughs> um, it was the largest attended lecture that they'd ever had. <laughs> but anyway, so. 500 people out there in the audience said, and I'm standing up there in front of them and I say, I, I tell them, you know, um, all religions, nobody can prove the belief or their theory about death and afterlife. We all are probably lying. We probably all made it up. But I think the important thing about religion is finding, since we're all going to die, finding the belief system that provides us the greatest amount of comfort to get us to death. When we're dead, we'll take care of ourselves. Between now and death, we have to have something that will keep us sane or good or provide us hope or whatever. And for Christians, it's a belief in heaven. I don't. I can't prove that's wrong. I don't believe it's right, but I can't prove it's wrong. For me, it is the continuation of life, um, whether it be rebirth or reincarnation or whatever. 
But I can't believe that either. You, you don't believe in reincarnation then? Me? Or along the same lines, like, yeah. No, no, I, not really. Uh, not, not reincarnation as it is traditionally understood in the West. There is no permanently existing solar self. I believe in waves on an ocean. Okay. So depending on your karma, you'll, you'll come back again in a different, uh, you know. In, yeah, the, different. Assemblage, the assemblage of atoms that compose me will be different. Maybe I'll be the same. I mean, if there's a need for, and I can't imagine what that need would be to have another person like me come around. But, um, you know, it, I guess it could be possible that maybe there's deficiency in people like me and they need another one. But the, my belief is, is that this life is gone. Um, I, I, I have no need. I have no need to continue. Uh, I, I believe that what Buddhism is trying to teach us is to let go of our need to be eternal or to be continuing or to be so self-important that we can't let it go. And now I could be all wrong. <laughs> I don't have all the answers, but this is my, this is what I've your, come to your believe. Right. This is what, how I, Pardon? You were saying something? Oh, yeah. I, I think we're going to have to continue this conversation another time. Huska's hungry, and so am I. i got to be up at 2 o'clock in the morning to go to work. Yeah, and I have to I have to get up and take my dog to the kennel so that I can catch my airplane. And it is 9 o'clock. Oh, have, have, have a safe so, flight. Yes, so yeah, I, have, I, even though I, yes, even though I did not begin the service, to the, the meeting today with a brief service, I do want to end it with chanting Odaimoku three times together. So, okay. uh, since this is also on the recording, so let uh, I will begin. Uh, it's traditional that the priest does the first one solo, and then everybody joins in on two and three. All right. So, Namu Myoho Dengekyo. Namu Myoho Dengekyo. Namu myoho denge kyo. Thank you both very much, and I look forward to being able to speak with you more at some other time. Thank okay. you for taking your time right before your big trip. Oh, yeah, of course. My, I have fun doing this. Okay, I'm going to turn the recording off, and uh, y'all sign off, and we'll talk to you when I get back. Okay, okay. thank okay. you. Bye, y'all. Bye. -bye. Bye.